Welcome to Cornerstone Online. If you are new, uh, I'm Steve Matson, and my wife Brenda and I uh, launched this congregation in our home 27 years ago. Uh, so here we are again in homes, and we're so glad that you've joined our growing community of Christ followers all over the world, uh, and not just Christ followers, but people who are exploring the Christian faith. You are welcome to be a part of this group. Now, if you aren't new, welcome back. Uh, good for you for tuning in as we start the fourth month of Shelter in Place. Ugh, we are so looking forward to the weekend we can gather again. But in the meantime, if you're feeling safe with friends and family, I encourage you to gather. Invite your friends over for a watch party next weekend and make your home into a small church, where by that time we will be in the third week of our five-week series on racial reconciliation. So thank you for returning to the conversation today, which I open by saying that I'm quickly developing empathy for two types of cornerstoners during this season. First of all, it's our African-American members who, in addition to processing your own emotions with all that's happening, you are also being called upon by many of your non-black friends to educate them quickly on complicated and controversial topics like systemic racism or black trauma. That must be exhausting. And then there's another group that I'm growing uh, even more concerned about. It's those in our Cornerstone family who are in law enforcement. After talking to even just a few of you, I've been praying for you as you go to work, knowing the anger that will come at you that day. I want you to know that your church sees you and loves you. These are challenging times. And the best thing, probably the truest thing, I can tell you is this, we'll get through it. It's gonna be okay. It's not okay yet, but it will be. And when we get through it, we will be better for it. So let me pray as we open this service and prepare our hearts to worship and to hear the stories of some of our own congregation. Father, we all come to you now in the precious name of Jesus, your only Son, who came to make right, things right on planet Earth. Lord, we pray for the mission that he gave us to go into all the world and to tell people the good news that God has come to Earth to redeem it. Father, you know that we're living in troubled times. The, addi the addition of the, the, the whole topic of, of racial injustice and racial strife uh, to the fact that we've all been quarantined for the last three months. Uh, the stress level, we can feel it. But, so we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would invade our homes right now and bring peace, a peace that would surpass understanding, that you would be with us today as we listen, as we learn, so that we can love. Help us to listen, Lord Jesus, all of us to listen and assume that all of us have something to learn from someone whose experience is different than ours. So many of us are so quick to share our experience, but help us to pause for a minute and listen to someone else's experience and then ask them to listen to ours as well as we begin a dialogue. Help us to be a church that models dialogue, 
between people of differing opinions, but that we would have one faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us today. In Christ's name, amen. In a moment, we're gonna sing a new song. This song is called Love is a Miracle. And in the lyrics, we, we see the lyrics, I've got beauty for ashes. I've got joy for mourning. I've got praise for heaviness. And you know, I feel like we say this every week, but, we're, but church, our world is, is a mess right now. And in these moments, it's hard to remember the goodness of God. It's hard to remember that God has done something so great, so amazing, and what we thought was impossible, so that when situations arise, we can look at the situation and remember what God has done and still look to God and say, God, you are still good. And that was when Christ died on the cross for us. You see, when we talk about love, we see in the book of John, greater love has no one than this. And he would lay his life down for his friends. And when we saw what Christ did for us, it was the ultimate show of love. But not only that, it was a miracle because he beat the very thing that we see as impossible. He beat death. So we see the miracle of love. Just we see the cross, which is shrouded in love. By taking on our sin, he showed us love. By rising again three days later, he showed us love because he showed us that it wasn't over and he would come back for us. Each day that we, that we walk, he's a show of love for every person that God has brought into our lives and the community that we get to have, even when life is at its worst, it's a show of love. Because you see, God shows us love on days, even when we can't find the strength to love the people in our homes, when we can't find the strength to love ourselves, even on those days when we can't find the words to say that we love God back. So I pray that we would remember the love of God, the miracle of love. down in the valley before love came and grabbed me never thought I'd see the sun again without no hesitation you became a resurrection all the light that came shining in and I've got beauty for ashes I've got joy for morning, and I've got praise for heaviness. Love is a miracle. And I've got beauty for ashes, and I've got joy for morning, and I've got praise for heaviness. Love is a miracle. This is more than religion. Reverse the curse I was walking in. Now I'm dancing out my grave clothes. Where you leave me, I will follow. 
love is a miracle. I've got beauty for ashes. I've got joy for mourning. I've got praise for heaviness. Love is a miracle. Well, thank you, worship team. Uh, that last song really said it all. Uh, our souls are weary. But when we gather and we worship, uh, the Lord replaces that heaviness uh, with praise and those ashes with beauty. So thank you so much for reminding us of that. I know just sitting with that music for the last 10 minutes, that's really what I needed. Um, So thanks. And now it's time for us to uh, worship the Lord through giving. And there are many of you who give regularly to Cornerstone. Uh, You may want to add something to that today. And then there's some of you who don't. Uh, give online yet regularly. We would encourage you to do that. That's how you really help your church in a faithful way. Um, But if you don't regularly give and you want to do that now, you'll see that link and you can just hit that and donate to your church. And you know your contributions really do make a difference. And I hear stories all the time. I just want to tell you one. Uh, The Vargas Lamb family thanks you. Uh, They don't go to our church, uh, but we found out from someone who does that dad was in the hospital having surgery and it was about time for him to be released, but he was gonna have to be quarantined. And so the best way to do that is to get him into a a hotel where he can recover and protect his family members from the potential COVID virus that he might've picked up in the hospital. So we were able to just pick up the bill for the hotel. There's plenty of money in the fund that you've donated, that you've filled. And so thank you so much for giving. It makes a difference in individual people's lives. And of course, Cornerstone's outreach to this family of love uh, towards them, they couldn't believe it. And they emailed us this week and they're sending money back now to replenish the fund. They they wanna be a part of helping the next family who's in need. And having said that, that might be you. Uh, And if it is you, don't be embarrassed. We're here to help you. We want to help you. It blesses us when we help you. If you need anything, please let us know. You can see this, uh, you can hit that link and, uh, and, and, and then someone will reach out to you and we'll set things up and next thing you know, the need will be met by God, but through us. So today our sermon is uh, actually more of a conversation than a sermon. Uh, one of the things you won't hear the preachers say today is open your Bible to a certain text. Uh, but I'll tell you, the sermon from start to finish is solid gospel presented by two Cornerstone Fellowship leaders, uh, both of them good friends, one black, one white. Uh, Coincidentally, both of them pastor's sons. So there's a lot of Bible inside these guys' heads. And you're gonna hear the message of Christ coming out uh, as they lead us through this time. Uh, What my son, Kevin, is gonna share with you, what Pastor Eduardo's son, John, is gonna share with you, is as powerful as any sermon that I've ever preached. So let's all listen and let's all learn from these two men that we love. So Kevin, you and I, you, we come to this place where we're here because we've been having a really honest, hard conversation about where we've been at as a country, as a people, as an individual, as a community. There's so much happening and it's happening at speeds that feel 
like too fast and the things to think about too many Mm -hmm. and like the solutions like too far reaching Mm -hmm. to even begin anywhere and so like with all of that all you find yourself is frustrated Mm -hmm. and for us like it's been multiple conversations and Mm -hmm. we're at zoom calls and gosh the level of intense feeling and frustration and the moments where we're not saying anything at all because we're just like taking in the weight of mm-hmm. where we're at as a nation because of this really awful, terrible thing of racism and the way that's affecting people that we love, that we know. Yeah. It feels like what's needed is endless moments like these. Yeah. Like, are we ever going to get to the place where this isn't where we need to be? every single day at the table, Mm -hmm. figuring out what to do next. Mm -hmm. And so I'm grateful to be here in this place and having this conversation with you in front of the church, this place that we love. Mm -hmm. Like this is a community of people that we've lived life with, our families are absolutely a part of. Mm -hmm. And if there ever was an answer to the problem of pain, the problem of evil, if there was ever a group of people who were supposed to show, this is how yep. we do this together. Mm-hmm. It's the church. Yeah. And so thank you for being a part of this conversation. I want to thank you for the passion that you've continually demonstrated and shown, even in moments where I'm just like spent and I'm tired, to be able to even draw from you and the energy that you're applying towards, this is something that you care about. It's been an urgent thing for you. Um, And so today's conversation is sort of another conversation in something heavy and hard. But before we get into that conversation, church, let's pray together. Uh, This isn't something that we can just move ahead in without presenting this, this need, this request to find a next step, understanding before the Lord. Mm -hmm. God, I thank you for the ways that you've given people what they've needed in moments that felt like there was no way, there was no way forward. In moments that were so filled with pain and hurt that so many felt paralyzed, unable to act, unable to move, unable to speak. And yet you and your sovereignty, you and your love, you and your wisdom, You intervene and you remind us that you are with us through these really hard things. And so we ask for you to lead us in this conversation, in this time now. God, we invite you in. You're already here. Uh, You're already with us, but we acknowledge you and we acknowledge you as the third part of this conversation. And so we ask that you... uh, give us the right words to say and that you give us ears to hear each other and that you continue guiding our church towards justice Mm -hmm. and towards peace and towards that uh, positive peace that Dr. King talked about, which is the presence of justice Mm -hmm. versus that negative peace, which is the absence of conflict. We're pursuing justice together. Please keep leading us. Please keep giving us grace. Give us all ears to hear and eyes to see what you have for us. Amen. 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 So we're like steeped in some really heavy things, but we're dads too. Yeah. Uh, A husband, I'm a father of four. 
and like we're having a Zoom call and tons of crying, mostly you. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it is the both of us. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. where we're just like in these intense moments and then it'll be like a knock on the door and it'll be my kid saying, hey dad, can we go like fishing? Or hey dad, can we go out and ride bikes? Or hey dad, yeah. you name it, like all the things. And so not any one thing is happening in this country and not anything. Well, yeah, and like remember <laughs> like, the whole uh, global pandemic thing that's oh, like yeah, still, that was the still really going intense on. for a moment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Remember how that's like still yeah. here too somehow? Yeah. So we've been living like within that context, in addition to all these other really important things, in addition to being dads and husbands and living life with our family and our children. So one of the things that I'm experiencing all through this is like I had a COVID 19 birthday. Oh, those are real special. Which is super special. They're hard right now. It's like, yeah. how do you show somebody that you love, that you appreciate them when everything from is... From six feet away. Yeah, from six feet away when everything is closed. It's like, I turned 37 this year and... That's a big one. I, it's a big one. And yeah. I think like one think of the... that's like the plastic. What's the 37? I'm not sure. It's I feel like it's a polymer of I, some, well, some kind, sort of polymer. Right? Um, and so my family probably had to ask the question, are we doing balloons? Cause like yeah. really all we can do is like flip maybe what's the vibes in the house. Yeah, exactly. Give it some new can't, feeling. Can't go anywhere. You can't go anywhere. So, but if, if I'm being honest, like my wife, she probably gave me the same exact birthday I would have had even without all yeah, of this. Yeah. Uh, she's so sweet, so thoughtful. She bought me a new fishing license and um, she bought me a new fishing pole, which like it's already broken. My kid already broke it. So <laughs> it only lasted a couple weeks. Um, and she Happy had, birthday. yeah, yeah, it was amazing. She, she had this like um, incredible day planned for us to be able to like go out and just experience this wildlife with the family. We went to Chabot Lake, um, Lake Chabot and, oh gosh, if you haven't been out there, it's beautiful. The walk out there, the trails that you go through just to see everything is just gorgeous. So it was really a, a cool day, a cool spot. Um, but she just imagined this day where all of us were going to be together and we were all going to get to fish and we were all going to have this experience where, you know, we're catching fish, we're stopping and having lunch, like no interruptions, right? Mm -hmm. Everything would just be smooth. But like, obviously, and you have kids and you guys go fishing too. Um, obviously, the problem with that whole plan is that we're doing it with our kids, Yeah. <laughs> right? It, like full stop with our kids is the problem. Yeah, yeah. And so we get out there and the whole time, like I am only untangling lines. Like they're casting it in places and in ways that I didn't even think were possible. It gets to a point when you're fishing with your kids where it's like that had to be intentional. There's no way you could accidentally mess that up that yes. badly. Zero chance you weren't thinking about how badly you could knot this up. <laughs> I feel like it has like we need a different word for it. Like it's not fishing when you're fishing with like little it's like it's fishing adjacent. It's from far away, it looks like they're fishing. And then the closer you get in, you're it's like, like, no, this isn't that. Not at all. Yeah. Not Is at that all. that dude about to punch somebody? Right? And so that's what it looked like. It was this giant tangled mess the entire day where I'm just like untangling line and I'm rebaiting hooks. And I really didn't get to fish all day. I uh, only cast a few times. And it was only to show them how to do it after yeah. I fixed it. Yeah, okay. even that. This is how you do it. And then like, you finally get one in the water yeah, and you yeah, just go, here, yeah. hold this right? and try not right? to. And so that day I only caught like one fish. It was this tiny fish. And to make things worse, like I got geared up for it. 100%. So, 
I'm wearing these super dumb overalls, <laughs> <laughs> and like the triumphant picture is like me holding this tiny little bluegill fish, you know. And so my wife, she's she's bummed, and she's saying to me at the end of the trip, like, John, okay, next time. Just so that way you can have peace and do the thing that we really want to do. Like, just go by yourself. Like, don't even bring us. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, like, I thought about that because, yeah, if I go by myself, that means that I get to actually fish. Yeah. But, gosh, if there's anything that shelter in place has heightened in me, it's just the value of being with my family and, like, experiencing things together with Mm -hmm. them. And so, though what would be easier would be for me to do this by myself, but what would be best is if I could like mentally prepare every time I go fishing with my family to know that I'm gonna have to be the dad that problem solves and untangles and teaches. And it's gonna be seven, eight, nine, ten trips of this repeated thing mm-hmm. until we can get to the place where together we can do what we set out to do, which is fish. Yeah. That is the ultimate goal, is like to do this together. Yeah. And it would require a level of learning for my kids. So that way, you know, if one of them was say like 28, and I, if I'm still entangling line yeah. <laughs> for an adult child, yeah. then I haven't done my job. Yeah, exactly. All I've done is created a crutch. And so it's like, go with them repeatedly, but also teach well. Yeah, totally. It's and like in, that's how you actually get to the promised land. Absolutely. you do the work. Do the work, yeah. move through the hard thing. And in the same way, like, with what we're experiencing here, what would be easier is if like you and I were to not have any of these conversations. Yeah, let's just not talk about it. At all. What would have been easier is if we didn't have to have any of those Zoom calls Mm -hmm. that were maddening and frustrating and full of pain. And if we would have distanced ourselves from having to tackle like life's real problem, all these tangled up knots for all their various reasons, that would have been so much easier. And the reality is, as a country, as a people, in many ways, that's what we've done. Mm-hmm. And look where we are. Yeah. Let's just, let's just not talk about it. Let's just pretend that it's not here. Let's mm-hmm. just pretend that these lines aren't tangled. Mm-hmm. For me, um, sort of a similar analogy to the, this moment we're in right now that's, that's been helpful for me is um, I heard a, a, a really smart dude say this on a podcast, so I'm just stealing it from him. But he... Um, he, he referred to this moment um, in terms of cancer and cancer treatment. Mm-hmm. And so he was saying um, he grew up in an area where I think they had a lot of like chemical mm-hmm. and factor. And there was a lot of cancer in his mm-hmm. area, mm-hmm. a lot of carcinogens in mm-hmm. the area. Mm-hmm. So he said, I've just seen cancer in a, lot of, and in a lot of different stages and in a lot of different ways. And I've watched it played out mm-hmm. with a lot of people that I love. Mm-hmm. And he said, the surest way to make sure that cancer kills you is to ignore it Mm -hmm. and to pretend like it's not there Mm -hmm. and to just try to wish it away. Mm -hmm. Um, But the the most, uh, the the hardest thing to sort of reconcile sometimes is that sometimes the treatment for cancer is so intense Mm -hmm. that while you're in the treatment, it looks looks like it's getting worse. Mm -hmm. There's a moment and and it can feel like it's getting worse and it can feel like I should just stop this treatment because I feel so terrible Mm -hmm. that there's no way this could possibly be good for me. But the reality is Mm -hmm. that sometimes the cancer that we have is so, so um, ingrained in who we are, so insidious, so pernicious, so in all of the nooks and crannies Mm -hmm. 
that the only way to treat it is something radical and is something really difficult and painful and hurtful. And, and he drew an analogy to the moment we're in right now as a country where he said, yeah, it looks worse mm -hmm. than it looked a month ago. Mm -hmm. But my hope is that what we are seeing right now is the treatment. Mm -hmm. And that what we're seeing right now is it looks like the trajectory that we're on is here, but really that's the only way Mm -hmm. to get us past this moment. And that's mm -hmm. the hope that I have, you know, as you referenced earlier, like you and I have been having these conversations for years mm -hmm. about sort of our coming from different places, but with a shared frustration and a shared heartbreak mm -hmm. and a shared responsibility for the church and the role that the church is supposed to play in this moment. Mm -hmm. And on one hand, um, seeing how hurt people are right now is really hard. Looking that in the face right now is really hard and it feels worse than it did a month ago, two months ago or whatever. But that cancer was already killing us. Mm -hmm. It was just quietly killing us. Mm -hmm. It was just quietly dividing us. Mm -hmm. And it was quietly keeping us from the gospel-centered community that the kingdom of God is supposed to be ushering in. And so that's my hope in this moment mm -hmm. is that we're able to um, start the long generations long, arduous, painful mm -hmm. struggle, mm -hmm. or join, I guess is a better word, hmm. um, towards, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. being cancer free. Yeah. And so there's like a right kind of pain like you're talking about. Yeah. There's a kind of pain that you're feeling because we haven't talked about it. And there's the other kind of pain that we're feeling because we are talking about it. Yeah. And it's... And we have an instinct to flee pain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm seeing that play out. We're going to talk about that more, I think, even over the course of this conversation. I'm seeing it feels better to flee the pain and ignore the pain and try to compartmentalize the pain. And, and that, frankly, that's a lot easier to do as a white person than as a, as a black person because I can choose to not think about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen that. I've seen that in my own life. I've mm -hmm. seen that in my own heart, mm -hmm. like those instincts and seasons where I'm just like, I can't mm -hmm. think about that right now. And so I won't mm -hmm. think about that right now. And I'm even seeing that play out right now you know, in my own life, in my own community with people mm -hmm. that are just kind of like, wouldn't it be easier if mm -hmm. we just mm -hmm. didn't, can we just flee this pain mm -hmm. instead of looking it right in the face? Mm -hmm. And we can't, we can't look away. Like yeah. we have to contend with this and wrestle with this. Yeah. And so last week we started at the place of sin, which is like the overarching narrative of everything that we're experiencing, not only here, but just across the earth throughout history. It's been sin. Sin is the thing that gives rise to all of these evils that we yeah. experience, all the pain that we experience, all the pain that every human being on this earth, it traces back to sin. That's the fundamental problem. So if you haven't had the opportunity to watch that service, please go back because this conversation is sort of wrapped up, surrounded by that very fundamental truth mm -hmm. that sin is the base reason yeah. that we're in this place today. And so we're going to try to narrow it. Mm -hmm. It's a tangled mess, mm -hmm. and it's a painful thing, but we're going to narrow it to these past 400 years that has brought us to the place that we're at today. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to narrow it to American history. We're going to narrow it to the stories we tell ourselves. The stories that we tell ourselves that might not be, like, obviously they're not the same. Mm -hmm. So we have to start from a place of listening. We have to start from a place of listening well to one another. And so. Yeah. And this is a, this is a gospel conversation. This mm -hmm. is a gospel centered conversation. This mm -hmm. is, I mean, we've been talking about this from the beginning, mm -hmm. but 
you know, it, speaking of like fleeing pain, like I, I'm, I'm hearing even just from people I love, there's a little bit of this underlying emotion where it's like, but do we have to talk about this at church? But can't we, mm-hmm. can't we, can't this just be a place of solace? Can't mm-hmm. this just be a place of rest? I'm already getting that mm-hmm. from everywhere else. Mm-hmm. And, and to that, I think both of us would say like, if, if the church isn't rising to meet this moment, then who are we? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then we're abdicating our God-given responsibility mm-hmm. to shepherd mm-hmm. people through the world that they're living in. And mm-hmm. the idea that our entire country would be having one conversation right now, sometimes having it well, many times having it very poorly, mm-hmm. and that, that we would view the church somehow as an escape from that mm-hmm. versus uh, a place where we can, can try to put on a Jesus-colored lens mm-hmm. <clears throat> to view this conversation and to equip the saints mm-hmm. to engage mm-hmm. in a way, to shepherd people out of, of, of privilege, mm-hmm. out of racism, out of prejudice, mm-hmm. out of division, mm-hmm. out of mm-hmm. setting up camps on mm-hmm. one side and the other side and lobbing bombs. If, if, we, if we weren't doing that, mm-hmm. then what a toothless church, mm-hmm. what a small, I think, meaningless church that's completely um, um, abdicated its, its prophetic responsibility mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. both to its own people and to culture. And so I would say I, to the people that are ready for us to move on from something, I see you in that feeling. I relate to that feeling. I am tired. Mm-hmm. But we can't, we can't uh, give in to that impulse to yeah. just go find somewhere safe and warm where we don't have to think about these things because that's how we got to this moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the same question of like, can we move on that was asked of this Samaritan that Jesus presents in this story. Two other characters who just walk past it. I don't want to think because about it. Because that is a choice to just walk past it. Yep. But there is still brokenness and many forms of it in this journey of life that all of us will face mm-hmm. on different levels. But in this instance and today, there's a broken man. Mm-hmm. And today, in many ways, it's a black man. Mm-hmm. And on this journey of life, like will we stop long enough to listen? Why is the black man crying? Mm-hmm. And why are people who love black people broken? And can we move towards, towards. that pain? And can it inconvenience you for just a moment, mm-hmm. just a moment, That means time, it means resources, it means actually touching this very broken, hurting situation. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we're at today. Mm -hmm. And the place that we're going to begin to sort of untangle this massive knot of pain is at the place of listening and understanding the stories of black people that we've been working so hard to convince others are real. Mm. I mean, one of the questions that I've been getting, I've been on so many calls and having so many conversations with some of my friends who I, I, I love so much. And the question is, is asked in a ways that are really just kind. And they just want, hey, help me understand mm-hmm. black history. Help mm. me understand what happened. Help me understand the reason why you're down and hurting. Help me understand how your story might connect to a mm-hmm. much larger story that Maybe I read in a textbook, yeah. or maybe I didn't. Yeah, yeah. And tell me how, tell me, tell me how that's connected to George Floyd. Help, help me make that. Tell me how that's connected to Ahmaud Arbery. Mm-hmm. Tell me how that's connected mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Tell me. Mm-hmm. And so, 
when I hear that question, what's also embedded in that question is, I don't know what happened in white history in America mm -hmm. beyond the last you know, 15, 20, 30 years that feel great mm -hmm. to me. To me. And so the reaction that I'm seeing, it's incongruent with my understanding of your reaction. So help me understand, which is a great place to start. Yeah. But tell me about black history in America. And, and like implicit in that too is so interesting. Is like if I hope what people are hearing themselves say when they're asking themselves that question is the the implicit acknowledgement that, hey, somehow in the story that I've been told or that I've been telling myself or that I subscribe to mm -hmm. as far as like the story of America, somehow your story doesn't fit in that, mm -hmm. which because the way you're responding to this moment mm -hmm. doesn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's sort of a choice that's presented in that moment, mm -hmm. which is I either want to minimize, mm -hmm. I either want to look away, I either want to argue, I either want to justify, mm -hmm. or I want, to, I want to acknowledge the idea that maybe my story mm -hmm. is incomplete or maybe my story is false. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so will you help? Mm -hmm. You know, I hope that's what's implicit in that question is, how, it's not just help me understand your history, it's help me understand mm -hmm. my history. Yes because my history and your history are mm -hmm. wrapped up together and how are we supposed to build mm -hmm. something together in the future if we don't have a shared vision, a mm -hmm. shared understanding of how our histories have intersected in the mm -hmm. past. Mm -hmm. Yes, and the thing that is the through line for black history is black trauma because embedded in the history that I've had to face that I haven't been able to look away from that I've been like absolutely deeply aware of. Sure is that it's been embedded with trauma. And when I, when I say that, when I think about that, I, I'll explain it this way. The other day I was uh, out with the family and we were riding bikes and I was on a longboard and Lily was on her Razor scooter. And How we're old just, is Lily? Lily is 11. Okay. Yeah, and uh, oh gosh, she's so beautiful and I love her so much. And so, you know, with our kids, anytime they get hurt, like we feel like it just breaks our heart. And so she was riding on this Razor scooter and it like hits this divot in the sidewalk and it buckles and she falls to the ground and they do that cry that oh. just goes, you go, oh. And there's that cry at the beginning where it's like the cry's the same whether it's I skinned my knee or I broke my yeah. arm for yeah. like the first 10 seconds. And you just, and you're like, stop. how bad is this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So jump off the longboard, run over to her, see how she's doing. And she's just in like real pain and your stomach is turning and you're just holding her, like trying to, Remove the pain with whatever your hug. You, yeah, seriously. And you can tell, like, she's really shaken up by this, and she's really hurt. And she tried to walk for a second, but they get all lightheaded, and like, I think I'm gonna faint, you know, just because the adrenaline rush. Yeah, like, exactly. Hey, let's just sit down. Just take a breath. Yeah, and you just kind of sit there with her, and you and you hold her, and fortunately, it wasn't broken, just only sprained. But that's the kind of pain that's typical that you can just get up yeah, and you eventually can bounce back from that. kind of dust yourself off and yeah. move on and you know she's going to get back on the razor scooter and maybe a little bit more cautious but not like worried and to a degree that's really like I had this traumatic experience. It's not going to wake her up in the middle no, of the night. No, but what would be traumatic and this is what I would say black trauma is, is likened to is if while she was writing on that because of the color of her skin somebody went up to her and forced her to the ground and wanted to see her feel pain. And while she was down, spat on her and hurled words at her that would make her feel 
like less than a human being. Like that's the kind of pain that you don't just get up yeah. and dust yourself off and wait a few days till the, get over it. Every, the, the scab comes and you, you get healed up and then you move on to the, to the next thing. That's the kind of pain that cuts you on a level that is so deep and cuts into your humanity and cuts into your worth that you don't just bounce back from. Yeah. And so when I'm talking about this history that I've had to face, this history that I've been well aware of, it's in that context, sure. in that light of black trauma. Sure. A history that starts back in the 1600s with the crossing across the Atlantic to Jamestown, Virginia, to the Florida plantations where, you know, Florida, what do you think of? You yeah, generally Disney think of World, beaches. Disney World. A great time, beaches, a great time, the Florida Gators. Like, many people imagine all of the great things right now, but when I think of Florida, I also think of generations back, uh, only a handful of generations back from me, my family, who worked that ground. So your, your actual ancestors. My ancestors. You could track them back to actual Florida, actual plantations. Plantations in Florida. This is the history that I'm having to face. Mm -hmm. Malevolence touched their lives mm -hmm. only a few generations back. Mm -hmm. And you're pushing it forward from the 1600s to the Civil War. And don't pretend like the Civil War is when things suddenly ended. It was when things reached another boiling, boiling point, point. Yep. in history. And there was blood and there was death. Over f people who wanted to preserve this way of life so bad that they were willing to die for it. Yep. And what ended up coming from this civil war was like, it didn't move to complete liberation. It, it moved to mob mentality lynchings to show a people, a black people, that you are subhuman and know your place. Yeah. It was them hanging from a tree to remind a people to put their lives on display that you're worth nothing. I can just take your life and I can put a noose around your neck and I can physically raise you up and put you on display because this is how little I think of you. And and the state will protect me. Yeah, and I, no one will say anything. I will not, this, not only will the state protect me, but so will all the other people here. I'm only at 1860, which is only three, four generations from me. Mm -hmm. This is the history that I'm talking about. This mm -hmm. is the trauma. Mm -hmm. that I'm describing. Mm -hmm. And you push that forward to another 100 years. You're yeah. at 1960. Mm -hmm. You're at civil rights. Mm -hmm. And right there at that intersection is my mom. Yep, that's when it gets really real. And my grandpa. Yep. My mom, who's only two years older than Ruby Bridges, the first black girl to integrate school in elementary school in the South. So your, your actual mom. My mom. Is, would have been, if she was in, if she lived in the same place Ruby Bridges lived in, wouldn't have been integrated because she was two years older. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, how, how do you? So the, 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 the white families in that area would have said, I, we cannot take John's mom. Mm -hmm. We cannot abide the idea of John's mom being mm -hmm. in school with our white kids. Mm -hmm. It's your mom. That's my mom. And her story wasn't much different. My grandpa, he got transferred from a military base in Riverside to one in Sacramento. And he was trying to buy a house for the family. 
and they wouldn't let him buy a house. So he had to have a white friend, like, pretend to do all the things and get the paperwork all set up. And then he came in at the very last minute. And when he did that, uh, the neighbors were furious and they held a meeting. What are we going to do? This is in California. This is in California. Yeah. Sacramento. Yeah. Carmichael area. Like, what are we going to do? Because, because a black family had the audacity to move into our neighborhood. Yeah. Imagine that. Your family moving into a neighborhood and simultaneously to that is the question, who wants to move out? Yep. Who doesn't want to be here because Who doesn't I'm want here? to be here because I'm here? And so when they finally do get the house, a number of, a number of them do move out. And but even, sorry, this is so dumb and so small, but like think about how, how, how we've all moved, right? Mm-hmm. Moving sucks. Mm-hmm. Moving so terrible. Mm-hmm. So the idea that someone would choose to like uproot their family mm-hmm. and move because four doors down there's a black family. Mm-hmm. That's in California, mm-hmm. not very long ago in your family's mm-hmm. past. Mm-hmm. That's how much I hate the idea of being near mm-hmm. black people. The idea that my neighborhood could be sullied yeah. by yeah. black folks. That, that I'm somehow on that same level. We mm-hmm. both have houses in the same mm-hmm. Oh, and it's not just that one community. I talked with my mom last week, and we used to go over to a friend's house. She was amazing. Her name is Ruth. And she told my mom, hey, Tanya, just so you know, like, I know it was strange that all the neighbors would come out and see what you guys were doing every time you would come over to our house. Well, her and her neighbors had all agreed that they would never sell their house to a black family either. And so every time we came over, they wanted to make sure that that wasn't happening. So these are two neighborhoods within... Yeah, different. You know, a different, handful of miles of each other yeah. with the same sort of So there's, there's an agreement amongst the white families. And so when they see a black family that's just there visiting, playing with other people, the immediate thought is, wait, wait, no one's violating our secret pact mm-hmm. to not let any black folks move mm-hmm. in, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gosh, and I can tell you so many more well, stories. Well, you tell me about your sister. I mean, my sister, I don't know how resilient and powerful and strong she is because she's been through so much that her levels are just, they're astounding. But growing up in in Carmichael, she dated a a white guy whose dad happened to be the sheriff. And at first she didn't know why, but every time we would pick him up to take him with us to church, he'd always have her stand outside and wait. And she'd never met the mom either, and so it was kind of weird. I'll meet you out front. Yeah, I'll meet you out front. And later on, she found out the reason why he always had her wait outside was because her dad wouldn't allow a colored woman to ever enter into that house. And what's more like heartbreaking for me is reality that she just accepted that. Totally. Because that was what we grew up in. She was like, oh, okay, actually, that makes sense to me. That makes sense. I've seen enough of that in my life yeah. that that doesn't I'll blow just, my mind. I'll wait outside, and then we'll go to church together and think about Jesus, and we'll think about this new way, this better way, while still facing. And, and then I'll drop you off out front and never shake your dad's hand or give him a hug. Or... And so these things aren't, they aren't distant yeah. from me. These things are eerily normal. Mm-hmm. And so those are just stories of my family. Mm-hmm. But things have happened to me. The story that Ingold shared last weekend about 
a teammate who received this word, the N-word. Like, my story has those exact same examples in it. Yeah, but you're the friend. But I'm the friend. Yep. And to just be trying to go to school and just doing things that are normal, that are common for other people, and then all along the way be called a nigger because of the color of my skin and with the intention to introduce pain and to dehumanize me is so, so maddening. Yeah. And so when I hear, when I hear things like, I don't understand why everyone isn't just peacefully responding to the horrors that are happening in this world as if the horrors themselves aren't enough. When I hear that, it's really hard for me. Because I'm not just seeing anything that's happening in a moment. When I, when I think of what I saw with George Floyd and the officer, that to me embodies this narrative, this history. Absolutely. That the black people have had to experience. And it brings all of this pain to the surface. It reemerges in the moment that I see this. Absolutely. And so the response, it feels irrational to those who are watching if you're unaware of the history that we've lived with. Absolutely. To look at Ahmaud Arbery and not see, Ahmaud Arbery and not see a, a lynching. Oh my God. And not see Emmett Till and a hundred other faces in that exact same moment. And to say, this is why the history, our, our history, the stories that we're telling ourselves mm-hmm. is so important because this is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Different faces, different weapons, mm-hmm. same racism, same outcome. Black person in a white space, suspe- suspected of a crime he didn't commit. Mm-hmm murdered without any benefit of the doubt, and for months, no accountability. Of course. It's like the only, the only right outcome is to be so mad. It's like if you're not mad, then you're not paying attention. If you're not mad, then you're not in tune with the heart of God. If you're not mad, then, then you're not seeing. When I look at your face, I'm not seeing Imago Dei. I'm not seeing someone who's equal to me because how could you not be mad? How could you not be furious? And I saw someone that said, I'm not mad at the people that are protesting, or I'm not worried about the people that are protesting. I'm not worried about the people that are angry. I'm worried about anyone who saw that video and didn't want to burn something down. Because if that's how you, if you, if you can't access those emotions, if you're angrier at the idea of, of disorder, than you are at the idea of dehumanization, then I'm sorry, but it's as simple as you're not in tune with the heart of God. Because he's not grieving damaged property. He's grieving murder. He's grieving dehumanization. He's grieving a man calling out for his dead mom. Like that's what he's grieving. And so we know that, that where our God is. We know the side that he's already picked. We know that he's on the side of the oppressed. And so the only right response of his people is to join him on that side. And and the crazy part too is like, these aren't just, you know, your stories. And for every story you're sharing right now, you've shared other stories with me and with other people you love that we don't even have time to get into. And there's so many other stories just from our own community. And we're going to watch a couple of them. We're going to watch them. 
there are stories right now that are right next to my life. You're going to see a story of my brother, a story of Taylor, who is a part of our church, a part of our community that has led us in worship from a place of love. Your friend Ryan, these stories aren't removed from us. And so as a church, if we can, let's stay in this now and exercise this really God-centered, loving posture of listening as we hear stories of our black brothers and sisters. What's going on, Cornerstone? My name is Daniel. I'm John's brother, and I'm really excited to be asked to speak into what you guys have going on there now. I remember growing up hearing from my mom and her brothers and sister um, what it was like for them growing up. Um, they were the first black family in all of Carmichael, um, and just the process for them buying a house and going to school and being involved in sports was just so hard for them. I remember hearing their stories and thinking to myself, man, I'm so grateful that I, I don't live in that kind of world, that, that my generation is now past that. I realized really quickly that that wasn't the case um, in first grade. Um, I'll never forget um, my classmate James being the first one to call me the N-word um, and, and realizing that when he saw me, he saw something that, uh, that he didn't like um, and, and felt the need to express that in the way he did. Um, I remember in, in uh, my freshman year of high school um, going to a baseball tournament in Ripon, being the only black player on my team as well as in the tournament as a whole, um, and, and going to the plate for my very first at bat and getting hit um, with a pitch. And, didn't think much of it, but then the second at bat, and then the third at bat, and then the fourth at bat, and the fifth at bat, just repeatedly getting hit over and over again. Um, I realized in that moment uh, that it was very intentional looking at the other team, their faces, the coaches, their faces, as they looked at me, um, I realized they didn't want me to feel comfortable, and I, I sure didn't. They succeeded in making me feel really unsafe in that moment. Fast forward a little ways, I remember my brother and I coming back from a worship um, event. I was driving, towing a trailer, um, and uh, uh, going the speed limit. Um, the speed changed down to 55. I was on cruise control, kind of spaced out, and uh, we got pulled over. And I remember, um, I'll never forget what happened in that moment. It's kind of shaped how I respond and how I think I need to be in situations like this. But I'll never forget the, the officer um, approaching our car, yelling. Um, and screaming at us, telling us to get our hands up and coming to my brother's window and pointing the gun inside the car. And um, yeah, just, just it felt so unwarranted um, and, um, and weird and awkward and uncomfortable. And I realized again in that moment, I need to be very careful and mindful how I am and how I act in those ways, in those situations. Um, just a few weeks ago, um, I had a conversation with my daughter about the George Floyd incident. And she asked me probably a question that I'll never forget, asking me um, if that would ever happen to me. And this is the world that she is now going to grow up in as well. And uh, man, so my hope uh, moving forward for you guys, um, also for my church here in Woodland, is that, um, yeah, she would grow up in a world where there are people willing to step up, willing to be her advocate um, in those moments, um, knowing that, that what we do now will affect her future and the future of the next generation um, just in amazing ways. I remember I was 12 years old. And at 12 years old, I was a really rambunctious kid and pretty talkative. And often my affinity for talking got me in quite a bit of trouble. And I remember on this day in math class, our entire class was being 
quite loud and crazy. Um, and me being one of the louder kids in class, I often drew the attention of my teachers uh, a lot quicker than other students did. Um, and I remember on this day, my teacher was pretty frustrated and she turned to me and she said, excuse me, but you of all people should be paying attention. Black girls don't usually get math. So you may just end up living in a cardboard box one day. And I remember my entire class fell completely silent. And even my other teacher said absolutely nothing. And at 12 years old, I wasn't necessarily a stranger to some of people's racial outbursts, but this was one of the first times that it had ever happened in front of an entire group of people and no one said anything. And I just remember going home and explaining what had happened to my mom or with my mom. And um, I realized in that moment, I didn't hate her. Um, I hated myself. I hated my skin. I hated my hair. I hated everything about me that brought this attention. I wanted people to stop looking at me. I wanted to just disappear. Um, because I just couldn't understand why it was that someone would look at me and say something so awful. Um, and it took me so much time, even years after. And unfortunately, many incidents more after that. It took so much time for me to understand what that phrase really meant to be made in the image of God. Because I was convinced, looking at my skin, that I was not. Um, and really, my hope is that that can change in our world. My hope for the world is that every person can see that the creativity of God is a showing of his love. That my skin is just another piece of the beauty that is the creativity of God to encompass how infinite and amazing he is. My hope is that every person would be able to look in the mirror and see something so loved by God. Hey everybody, I'm Ryan, I'm a friend of the Madsons, and I just wanted to share a story of how racism has affected me. Um, there's honestly so many stories that I could tell, but the one story that I always come back to is a time when I was 20, living up in West Sac with my family, and we lived in a really nice gated community. And one night, a friend of mine was leaving um, our house, it was probably like nine o'clock at night, and we were hanging out in, our, in my driveway just for a little bit, just talking, and Apparently, one of uh, one of my neighbors called the cops on me because I looked suspicious hanging around their neighborhood. Um, so lo and behold, a couple minutes later, a cop car arrives, pulls up, stops in front of her house, um, and asks to see my ID. And 
of, of course, like I'm sitting on my own property, so it's annoying for so many reasons. I'm frustrated. I know this is is the very least a microaggression, but certainly a racist act by one of my neighbors. Um, but pull up my ID. I prove that I live in my own home, um, and then he he says, "Fine, just stay inside the house." <laughs> Again, <laughs> being told to stay inside my own home uh, in my own neighborhood, but whatever. And it was one of those things where it just made me really uncomfortable to be in my own neighborhood, in my own home. Uh, so when I think of stories like Botham Jean, when I, when I think of stories like Breonna Taylor, Atsitiana Jefferson, um, these are three black individuals who were killed in, in their own homes. Um, and what's incredibly frustrating is that uh, as, as black people, we are taught to, uh, to act a certain way in public. When we go out in public, don't put our hood on. They tell us. Um, they tell us, don't put your, your hands in your pockets when you go into stores. Um, when, when you get pulled over by cops, make sure the, the hands are on the steering wheel. Like, don't make any sudden moves uh, because anything we do can get us killed in these kind of interactions. And here I was in my own home, on my own property, asked to see my ID because they didn't believe I lived there in my own, in my own neighborhood. And it's one of those things that even today, like this is 10 plus years later, um, when I'm going into the side door of my own home, I get nervous. I, I hope that somebody believes that I actually live here. I own this home that I'm, I'm at right now. And I hope that nobody calls the cops on me for breaking into my own home. That it makes me really nervous um, because we've seen so many interactions of people in their own homes uh, just being killed. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate beyond belief um and that was one of the situations that really made me say okay so i can't go safely out in public and i might not even be safe in my own home so there's so much about that that's so hard to watch and that's so hard to hear um one of the things that's hard that like feels like dissonant even in like watching the stories as they're being told is like the idea that you could tell a story of trauma, that you could tell a story of, I was just going 65 and a 55 and I had a gun pointed at me. Or Ryan basically saying, every time I open my own side door, I worry that somebody might not think this is my house, that somebody might make a call, that someone might show up to my house believing I am something that I am not. And I've seen how that ends. There's something, almost unsettling about watching people talk about traumatic experiences in such matter-of-fact ways because it speaks to the normalcy mm -hmm. of dehumanization. Mm -hmm. And it speaks to like, oh yeah, I got 50 more of these. How many more of these stories do you want? If I, if I completely broke down every time I heard one of these stories, every time I told one of these stories, I couldn't function. So this is how I function. Mm -hmm. is, is to, so like that's unsettling and then I'm also, you know, this is a longer conversation that you and I have had before, but as I've been on my own sort of journey with this as a history major at, in college and uh, studying and reconciling histories from different points of views was sort of a big part of the discipline and <laughs> sort of like into t today, as I've been on my own journey of sort of deconstructing some of the things that I had told myself, um, I, have, I have some empathy and I have some understanding for people who hear those individual stories and they want to hand wave them away and say, oh, no, that actually wasn't that bad or it wasn't mm -hmm. what you thought it was or whatever. Mm -hmm. Or 
for people that see an individual moment like a George Floyd or uh, so many other names that I could list right mm -hmm. now, Philando, mm -hmm. Ahmad, Brianna, Atatiana, and on and on and on, Tamir. And they wanna just say, let's look at that in isolation and here's why that's not. And, and I think what I'm, what I'm realizing at a biological and at a psychological level, what's going on is that our brains are literally wired from like a biological perspective to not do any work that they don't have to do. Hmm. Like pattern matching is built so deep into like our lizard brain of how we order the world and make sense of the world. And so, and then once a pattern works, once a narrative, a structure fits and helps mm -hmm. you explain your mm -hmm. part of the world, your mm -hmm. brain goes, good, check mark. Mm -hmm. Now only do th new things. Don't disrupt it. Don't disrupt that because that works. Yeah. And what I'm seeing is that we have these unconscious impulses. We, when I say we, I'm saying white people, have these unconscious um, desire or unconscious impulses to minimize or distract or look away or think about something else or explain away or justify because looking your story in the face and looking your experience in the face and looking our, uh, American history in the face and confronting the idea that racism is America's original sin and that the same men who wrote, the same man who wrote All Men Are Created Equal, Thomas Jefferson, went home to a plantation where he owned and raped and dehumanized human beings. That same man and just about everybody who signed that, that was their same story. So from the jump, mm -hmm. the idea of America, this great idea of America has been compromised. Looking that in the face and then carrying that forward the story we tell ourselves, the story we want to tell ourselves is, yes, we know that was bad. We don't actually want to think about it too hard, but we do know it was bad. It was bad. It's kind of like, yeah, 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 we mm -hmm. hear you. It was bad. But remember MLK? Remember I Have a Dream? Mm -hmm. Remember the Civil Rights Movement? Remember we signed the Civil Rights Act, 1968, six days after he died. We, mm -hmm. we did it. And the idea... But remember that he died. <laughs> but remember that just because he presented nonviolence doesn't mean that he wasn't met with violence. Yes. Remember, like, we, we, wanted, we want to create a narrative where we put all of this in the past and that fits really neatly into this idea of a post-racial society and I don't see color and it, it's all of a piece with, no, 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 that's who we used to be, but that's not, that's not who we are anymore. And not only does the evidence of our eyes today, both anecdotal hearing your stories and the stories of thousands, millions of other black Americans belie that story, but also mountains mm -hmm. of data. Mm -hmm whether you're looking at um, incarceration rates, whether you're looking at uh, 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 household income and wealth, whether you're looking at hiring, whether you're looking at the way people are viewed once they're inside the workplace. I mean, we could just go on and on and on. The story we want to tell, tell ourselves is, yes, that was bad, but MLK, and then some work, and then Obama, and then we're here, we're here, and we did it. And so not only does the evidence tell us that that's, not, that that's not true, but also just if we would just use our brains and just say, do we really think that 350 years between 1619 and the Civil Rights Act, mm -hmm. do we really think that 350 years of cultural inertia, of, of generational r racism, mm -hmm. of 
of every structure and every system that we've built in this country, just about all of them that matter were built at a time when at the very least, half of our country saw you as less than human. Like the idea that those systems aren't infected is, is illogical on its face. Like it's not even like, it's, 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 it's the most obvious answer in the world. Of course they are. We built these things. Whether we're talking about 1787 in the Constitutional Convention or we're talking about a, a, a government program that we built in 1931 or whatever, pick a thing. All of those things were built at a time when it was culturally acceptable to, to look at you and say, I don't want to share a bathroom with that man. I don't want my kids to go to school with his kids because he might. What if he gets some of his blackness on my whiteness? Like that, that's who we are. And so I guess what I'm getting at is, and what I'm inviting all of us into, myself included, is please realize, and what I'm realizing is that I told myself a story about who we are and how far we've come, and it worked really well for me. And then if I'm gonna look your story in the face, it doesn't just add to my story, it contradicts my story. It makes my story untrue. Hmm. And so I have a, a deep-seated incentive to reject it, mm -hmm. or to minimize it, or to look away. Hmm. And so I'm hoping, in my own heart, that by calling that out and saying, there's this thing, I know there are these impulses in here that are pushing me to do that, but that is not the truth. That is not Jesus. That's not the way forward. Yeah. That if maybe we can, we can agree not only on where we've been, but we can just agree on where we're at right now, that maybe that's the only way that we can move forward into what God's calling us to. And so rather than, um, giving in to any of those impulses to try to explain away any of those individual stories or any of those bigger stories or to try to put some distance between us in that moment, which even that's so crazy because my dad, my mom, the people that helped start this church, they were 10 years old when the mm. Civil Rights Act was passed. They were 10. Mm. Like that's, that, that's this generation, that's our generation that's in that. So rather than try to put any distance from it, I just want to ask you a question, which is, seeing the trauma that you've experienced both personally and the trauma you identify with as you know, being a black man, knowing how many times your story's been minimized or what about it or both sides or mm -hmm. tried to just, knowing how many times people haven't listened, why do you still have hope? Why are you still trying? Why are you still talking to me? Oh, like, wh why, are you, why do you keep going? It's a heavy question. Um. And that's a question that that black people have had to answer for centuries. And if there's anything that that this country, if there's anything this country should be grateful for, it's it's the strength of black people, <laughs> which makes me proud to be a slave and treated as less than human, and still. <laughs> Through that time, teach your kids to keep their head up. When everyone else is saying you're not worth it to experience a vision of someone 
who looks like you hanging from a tree and still saying, I have a deeply true inherent sense of worth. To experience rejection on the basis of, of this, that I didn't choose, like I was born with this and I'm proud. I'm so proud of this. And to still say, I believe in the church and I believe in love. And I believe that everyone needs to know and understand that they have value and they have worth and that there is no level of rejection that they should receive. There is no good reason to not give them that, to not offer that, to not remind them of that, of their worth. And so if this country should be grateful, it should be grateful that black people are a resilient people, a strong people. I'm so proud of my brother <laughs> who's experienced rejection on levels that most haven't. And I'm so proud of my sister. I'm so proud of my mom, our brothers and our sister and what they gave me and my family. I'm so proud of black people who've given this country Amazing music <laughs> that gives us joy, puts a smile on our face. Yeah, in the middle of that experience to not just survive, but to like thrive and make beautiful things out of it and give those things to the world. And I'm so proud of black people who've worked on their craft and their skill. And, you know, we've missed something during this time of shelter in place, sports. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Entertainment and the things that bring people together who normally wouldn't be celebrating and high-fiving, smiling and enjoying life, even despite the things that they've experienced, there hasn't been this withholding, mm -hmm. which makes me go, wow, I am so proud. You know what? Like, even with that, there's work to be done. Yeah. There's still work to do. So much. Recently, uh, my boys have gotten really good at fishing. Yeah. We've gone again and again, and I've dealt with a million tangled lines, but now my son Noah, he thinks. He says, hey, let the professionals fish. <laughs> like he's gotten to that place. It's he like, how do you go from helpless to cocky that quick? He still doesn't realize that we had to really work through it and that I'm still like putting the worm on his hook 100%. practically like 90% of the times. <laughs> but we've been going and just recently we went fishing. You know, it's just a father-son trip with the boys to do something that we've worked really hard at, and that we've waded through a lot of challenges in order to do it right, yeah. to be able to get this place where we're actually doing the thing that we set out to do. And, uh, and we're walking home, and I look to my right and I see this group of people looking at us, and immediately, I'm just like on high alert because I've seen these looks before. 
I've had things happen in my life where It's more than a look. It starts with the comment. Come here, nigger. I've had hands put on me. And I've come home and I've had to tell that story to my mom so many times it feels like just a normal thing. And so in that moment when I see that look, I say, boys, get behind me, get behind dad, get behind dad. And we're walking and we're in the middle of nowhere, so I don't know what to do. All I can think to do is call my wife and I'm leaving a voicemail saying, honey, I'm with the boys and we're walking home and I'm describing everything because all I am is worried that this is gonna turn out to be another situation like I've had to experience as a child or this is gonna turn out to another experience like I had to see when I watched Ahmaud Aubrey. And sometimes it is just normal and you just walk on and you move past, but sometimes you turn into a hashtag. And so these conversations aren't the end in the same way that the Civil War wasn't the end in the same way that civil rights wasn't the end in the same way that Barack Obama wasn't the end. Because for me, what's really important is that one day when my kids take their children fishing, they're not all of a sudden filled with this same sense of fear and worry and trauma that comes from a history that they're used to now and stories that they're so easily capable of telling because they're normal in their life. Yeah. It has to change. Yeah. It has to be different. We have to be better. Yeah. And so I wanna thank you because it starts at places like this, yeah, at the table of listening. And what I, what I want to contribute to that is to tell you that I love you, and I see you, and that your life matters. And I also want to tell you that I'm I'm committed to doing the work, even when it's uncomfortable to me, even when I feel sensitive, even when I'm tempted to say, but that's not my fault, but that's not me. Hmm. Even when I'm, even when there's parts of my brain that are looking for another narrative that I could grab and hold on to that would wrap this up in a much neater and tidier way that wouldn't force me to confront and look these things in the eye. And I'm confronted and I'm, and I'm committing to both the personal work, which is examining what's going on in my own heart, benefits that I may have had that you didn't, hearing your story, seeing your story, learning and listening. And I'm committed to the work of dismantling so many of the systems that perpetuate big, corporate, systemic evil that continue to dehumanize you and your kids and your sister and your brother and your mom and millions of other people like you. 
even if, especially if, it means that I'm, I have to lay down access or opportunity or privilege to do it because my, my posture as a Christ follower demands nothing less than that from me because if the same image of God that's present in you, that's present in me is present in you, then anything that makes you less than that is blasphemy against God. And I can't live my life like that. It's not, it's not just what I owe to you, although it is that. It's what I owe to me, it's what I owe to my family, and most importantly, it's what I owe to God. So thank you for choosing to trust both me and a whole lot of other people with stories that are so personal and so traumatic and choosing to believe that this time we might listen. Thank you. Yeah, let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you bring miracles to this movement, to this conversation, and that out of those miracles, we see justice, and we see peace, we see joy. We see the fruits of your Holy Spirit born out in your church, in this country, and that you lead us into uh, something better than where we're at right now. We love you. Continue to lead us. Continue to teach us. Amen. Amen.
Hey, Cornerstone, thanks for being with us this week. Man, we so desperately need the words of that song that we just sang to be true in our lives and in our hearts, that God would make us one, one with Him, one with His Son, one with His Spirit, one church, one with our sisters and one with our brothers. And I'm convinced that unity comes when we begin to listen to each other, especially those who are different than us. You know, James, the brother of Jesus, he encourages us to do just that in chapter one of his letter to the church. He says that Christians should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And so that's our challenge this week, that as we continue to have this conversation with friends, family, and neighbors, that we would be quick to listen and slow to speak. If you'd like to get more resources and continue to learn about today's topic, make sure to check out our resource page at cornerstoneweb.org loveothers. We have books, articles there, all that we, we, that we recommend, as well as a weekly study guide, a prayer guide, and my favorite of all, our Daily Steps devotional guide that will help you walk closely with Jesus throughout the week. You can check all of that out again at cornerstoneweb.org loveothers. Also, looking forward to next weekend. As shelter-in-place restrictions start to loosen, we want to invite you to begin expanding your church experience by watching our online services together with your friends, family, and even small groups. Even though we're not quite yet to open our physical facilities, our hope is that many of us will begin to gather in homes so that we can start to do church together again. And finally, don't forget to check out our YouTube page uh, tomorrow evening for Beyond Sunday as John and Kevin continue this conversation together. Hey, thanks again, church, for joining us. We miss you and we love you. Have a great week.